stranger, can you tell us where you've been? More importantly, however did you come to be here? Though a stranger, you can rest here for a while. But save your energy, your journey here is far from over. Come the sunrise, we'll descend through Judgment Valley. And way worth before Her Majesty, the Verde River. But to follow what you know No direction but a faith in her decisions Welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast Rad Dead 2023 We've got our background of old New York Or not old New York, old California Man, I'm all off today Um, Uh... Yeah, we don't have Golden Gate Bridge in New York. <laughs> what do you mean, man? Uh, it must be because I'm joined with Danger Zone on the interwebs. If you want to watch long, you can see and see our faces. Uh, we got DZ over there representing with a Zanzizi shirt. Which you can purchase through our Instagram. Hell yeah. Hell to the yeah, my brother. Oh wait, I don't think the zoom unless I make the microphone. No, it looks good. Don't don't mess with your don't mess with anything. <laughs> no, you know how the camera it, it only uh uh highlights you if you're speaking the way it's posted on YouTube. Yeah, yeah that's true. So I had to talk and say something to well, I have advertise. Ex- I have it set up so you can see both at the same time now. Oh, we're, yeah. We're, okay. we're slowly... I, I have a better webcam, too. I don't know if you noticed that, but it's a little better. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're upgrading slowly as we go along, folks. But we are already in our spooktober, spooktobular month, which means we're covering... If, if you know me in Danger Zone, we're going deep history here, folks, which means... Right, Red Dead, what are we going to cover? Well, you've already seen the title of the episode, so you know. Donner Party, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. It's going to get intense. It's going to get frontier-like. It's going to get intense. Uh, Two intenses right there. Because, look, this is a time when things weren't easy. Uh... But before we get into that, before we get into the, the, the preamble and, and the info and all that stuff, I want to ask you, Adam, because this is your first time on, on a spooktobular episode. Oh, boy. Uh, what kinds of stuff do you like to do for around this time? You, are, are you a big horror guy? Are you a big, you know, uh, celebrator of, of Halloween? Yes, I actually, I, I, Danielle mistakenly said that uh, Halloween was my favorite holiday 
or you know time of year the other day it's close it's probably the second or third mm-hmm. i like thanksgiving obviously christmas but thanksgiving's probably my favorite holiday of the year but i love halloween i've always i've always liked to you know get in costumes and you know go around get candy spook people you know as older i got i used to, when i was in high school i used to get all gobbled up and you know give out candy at the house <laughs> you know i would love to like spook the kids but you know that's all gone living up here in the sticks we don't have any neighbors <laughs> uh got to go downtown or something through the neighborhood we we take sander but um we like halloween around here we do uh we try to do movies like a couple movie nights per week during october doing like scary movies oh so, yeah yeah usually we'll do i don't know 10 maybe throughout the month but i told danielle yesterday i said we got to get on their spooky movie thing because it's already the fifth and we haven't even watched one yet i've been watching movies myself but not spooky ones yeah no i i uh so full disclosure this month we're doing an episode on the wineville chicken coop murders and i've been reading that book because i i finished Today's main source, um, The Indifferent Stars Above by Daniel James Brown, and uh, immediately thought I would read a book about heinous murder and uh, following a a book about, you know, frontiersmen uh, turned cannibals. And uh, it's been an interesting book reading period, but there's a movie based on the next subject. So I've been kind of floundering a little bit on my monthly uh not even monthly but like say spooky movie fest we are re-watching the haunting of hill house for an episode towards the end of the month so i've seen it like seven or eight times i truly believe the first season of netflix's the haunting of hill house is the best ghost story i've ever seen or and or read uh of all time it's such a fucking amazing show I think you told me about that, but I've never watched it. I don't I don't think I've watched it. You and Danielle would love it. Especially yeah. Danielle, I think, because the characters are very relatable. Um yeah. but yeah. I I watched it real quick while mm-hmm. we're on movies. I watched two movies this week that I hadn't seen before. One, which is eerily similar, sort of similar to this whole story, called Snowpiercer. Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. That's on a train, right? Yeah, it's on a train, yeah. like post-apocalyptic, but it's all snow and and like the rear uh, train car. Like he talks about how they had to eat each other to survive. So it, like the snow and the cannibalism part of that kind of was funny because uh, I didn't expect that going into the movie. But last night, <clears throat> and I'm not going to ruin it for any of your listeners or even you haven't seen it, but um, Old Henry, really good friggin' movie, dude. And the acting is phenomenal. I uh, I was looking for something to watch the other night, and it, it looked it up on Rotten Tomatoes. It's got 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, and it was on the Roku channel. Interesting. Um, yeah, so it, it totally like independent movie. Um, you know, I didn't really know what it was about, but I watched it last night, dude. It's about an hour and 45 minutes, dude. Watch that movie; it's really cool. It takes place in 1906. Oh, I'm, I, like I'm there. I'm there. O- Oklahoma Territory. Ooh. Um, it's just mm-hmm. a farmer and his boy and mm-hmm. uh all this drama comes you know onto the farm and they live out in the middle of nowhere and the, the acting is really good i forget the the two 
two main guys there, but uh, there are actually there's three. But yeah, it was a really good movie. Check it out. Sweet. Old Henry. Old Henry. Haunting of Hill House. You got your homework, listeners. All right, we're going to get into it. Donner Party, or a.k.a. the 1846 family road trip from hell. Now, I mentioned The Indifferent Stars Above by Daniel James Brown. Um, That is our main source for this episode. I finished the book on Audible. It's about 10 10 hour and change. I think if you have the time, I highly recommend it. It's probably the best book I've ever read on Frontier Life, especially because they have, in in the hard copy of the book, they have, like, wagon manifests. So if you want to see, like, the details on things like that and, like, what they had to get into. um, Because it's truly a harrowing, harrowing, harrowing thing. I mean... Not just in the in the idea of, of travel, because, yeah, like, maps, we didn't... Look, here's the f- thing. We didn't have MapQuest, we didn't have OnStar, we didn't have Siri, we didn't have Starbucks or Speedway. Things were... A, a lot of it was, like, word of mouth, and we're going to get a lot into the, the word of mouth stuff, but uh, it was scary. And not only that, but, like, the frontier is, like, 10 feet tall, like, thick brush. And you, you'd have these instances where, like, a kid could just wander off, and then you'd be like, where the hell's my kid? And then you never find them, because they get swallowed by the forest, or sniped by an Indian, or, you know, God forbid, they get bit by some sort of wild animal um because not like medicine was that great either um but other than in different stars above there's a really great american experience uh on the donner party on youtube for free and um there's a few other i mean obviously last podcast has done a a two-part series on this that's that's excellent um but we're talking pre-Civil War era here, folks. I mean, this is the this is the Oregon Trail era, if you will. And you're thinking, Reddit, isn't that a video game? Yes, little Chad and little Karen, it is. In fact, I played it in middle school, all eight bits, in neon green, on a little monitor in a small town Michigan computer class. But if you want to be real, let me break down before we get into this, the Oregon Trail, because There were some facts I didn't know. Uh, Most of us were raised on the video game, so the idea of folks traveling west and that kind of probably sprung up in most people's imagination. But the Oregon Trail was a 2,170-mile east-west large-wheeled wagon route and emigrant trail in the U.S. that connected the Missouri River to valleys in Oregon. The eastern part of the Oregon Trail spanned part of what is now the state of Kansas and nearly all of what are now the states of Nebraska and Wyoming. Have you ever been out that way? Yeah, I've driven through, well, the Great Plains like Wyoming, Nebraska and stuff like that. I I actually drove through with Dane when uh, he moved out to Virginia to live with me. Oh, wow. uh, Yeah, I flew out to San Francisco and then we took, uh, we went up to Sacramento and then we took i-80 across which basically i looked up all the maps and everything for the downer part it goes right through 
Truckee Lake and, and where this whole thing happened. Well, Truckee Lake is now Donner Lake, isn't it? Yeah, Donner Lake. But, but it's all right there. It's just north of Lake Tahoe. And I-80 oh, wow. runs right through there and then hits Reno and then goes up and through Utah, Salt Lake City. And then it goes up into the uh, north, uh, the southwest corner of Wyoming and across. And it's basically the route that they took minus that part. And we'll get to that. <laughs> no, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, I'd, 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 be, I'd be curious to see what it looked like now. That's all. Um, yeah, I mean, I took I took uh, pictures and videos and stuff driving across. It's so beautiful. And going through the Sierra Nevadas, uh, I mean, for us, it was September, so it, there was no snow. But, man, I couldn't imagine trying to navigate that and, and horse and buggy or, you know, wagon and cattle and all this stuff. Just no, I train. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> When we'll get into that. It's it's not easy, and and that's for sure. Um, Freeland was the main reason that people went out on the or, out to the Oregon Territory. They were trying to claim it for the U.S. because the rich farmlands of Oregon drew thousands of settlers. The land was free to those who could make it to the Oregon Territory. People were farming on marginal lands in Indiana, Illinois, and Missouri and found the lure of rich farmland in the Willamette Valley irresistible. Also, the British, Russians, and Americans all claim the Oregon Territory. I don't know what Russia thinks. <laughs> like, I saw that in your notes, Now I, I said, what? Yeah, I know. It, it, I, I, how are they even down that area well, at that point? That's a long way. I mean... That, this would be during, like... A stage where they still had some sort of like a monarchy and um i mean look how did they get over did they sail across the pacific or did they go through alaska and come all the way down because that's thousands of miles i i tell you what this has made me wonder is <laughs> is <laughs> it would be interesting to do some sort of russian history episodes just to see where because i know if I'm placing it in my head, I know Napoleon just lost to Russia, technically, just because you can't, I mean, I'm quoting the Princess Bride, but you can't get into a land war with, there, he says Asia, but this is Russia, uh, when they can retreat into endless sub-Arctic temperatures and crazy fucking vodka-fueled lands. I, I gotta imagine there was some sort of a, a stretch from, say, the, if you want to go from like the back half of Russia to to Oregon, um, and there was probably something set up where they either had land. I mean, it'd be interesting to know what their claims were when it came to coming to uh, America at the time too, because I'm assuming like at the time there was probably some sort of a land grab going on for Russia too, if there was going to be French trappers and, um, you know, Brits. Uh, but anyway, we can, we can theorize all day as little history dads, but, uh, we'll have to get into that eventually. Cause I am curious to know what the deal with that is. Now the rich farmlands, as I, as I said, is what drew them to Oregon the U.S. put out a patriotic plea for American settlers to move to the Aragon, ter Aragon, Oregon Territory sorry, to establish the claims of the U.S. 
to Oregon. So many people from the state settled in the Oregon Territory that most of the Oregon Territory went to America. So it was just by probably settling and the fact that we were already sort of there. Uh, before MapQuest, Apple Maps, Siri, and Google Satellites, and OnStar, things were hard. Real hard. You couldn't find a Walgreens to get battery, batteries for your remote control, or remote, remote controls weren't even a thing. In fact, electricity wasn't a thing. You had gas lanterns, things like that. Uh, Speedway didn't have rewards, and there wasn't a Starbucks in anyone's minds. Sure, there was coffee. Usually made more for the warmth of it than the taste. But if you wanted creamer, you had to milk the fucking cow and do the work. Fast food was the running elk or deer or whatever small game you could catch. The boogeyman was probably angry, and rightfully so, uh, a Native American tribe who sought to return the area to the way things were, and diseases were rampant. So let's talk about diseases during the time. I, you know... As a history dad myself, every time I look into this stuff, it, it just seems like we have nothing to complain about nowadays when it comes to disease. I know we just had COVID and it was bad, but um, you had these things that came up and uh, I mean, you know, dysentery, smallpox, measles, mumps. And influenza were among um, kind of the primary diseases named in diaries and journals. But cholera, mountain fever, and scurvy, scurvy were probably the biggest killers. Um, so let's talk cholera. It's, it's not good, folks. So according to the National Park Services in an article called Cholera, a trail epidemic, the early years of the California gold rush. Cholera struck each spring at the thronging jumping off towns along the Missouri River where thousands of gold seekers and Oregon bound immigrants gathered to outfit. The deadly disease claimed many lives before the victims even had a chance to start across the prairies of Kansas or Nebraska. It claimed many more along the trail corridor to Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and in, er and in American Indian encampments and villages as well. So this wasn't just like a shy disease that was like, we're just going to kill the Americans. It was, it didn't matter. It, it, you know, with things like this, it never does. Um, you it didn't take into account that you were, you know, of the land. Um, cholera is a, oh God, this is gross. Cholera is a bacterial infection that causes severe diarrhea and kills its victims through dehydration. The bacteria spreads through water and food containment, uh, contaminated by human waste. So today cholera is treated by rehydrating the patient with salty solutions. But at that time, the cause, means of transmission, and treatment of the disease were unknown. Travelers spread the infection among the unsanitary outfitting towns and carried it west from campground to campground and waterhole to waterhole. And it was so, so prevalent. I mean, like you said... It, if you wanted clean water, you really had to find a, a babbling brook or a stream. You know, if there were people around, you probably had like a 50-50 shot. Because, <laughs> I mean, look, 
we, 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 you know, I think most Americans will say, ah, I take a shower. I take a shower every day after I get home from work, stanking up like fish, sweating in my pits and my groin. But then, like, at this time, this, like, a bath was considered maybe a once a week affair, if that. And it was like more of the French persuasion, just spraying yourself with cologne or slapping your pits with some fucking cold water. Um, you ever play Red Dead Redemption? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love that playing, game. <laughs> when I was playing that all the time, when I, we were living in Virginia, I played it like every night for, well, not every night, but a lot for like mm-hmm. two years. And there was a bathhouse you could go to and like get a massage and shit. <laughs> That's a cool ass game. Anyway, that's what I was thinking about when you were talking. Slapping your yeah, going to a bathhouse. Hey, yeah, you know what? Yeah, everybody's dirty as shit. You only get to bathe once a week, maybe. And yeah, and that's you know, if you're it might not even be hot water. You know, just like no soap. Just you know. You know, it's funny because that was like one of the few pleasures you're allowed on Sundays when you were in the service during boot camp. And man, mm. I, that was my favorite part. Of I that remember Sunday. that. It's just sitting in the hot water, just like. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. But yeah, people take that one for granted. A hot shower will just, it'll cheer you right up after a shitty fucking day. And this, that, that wasn't even an idea, really, of the time. I mean, I'm sure people had the idea. I did remember. And part of the book, while I was reading it, they talked about how rather than like because of the temperatures and because of the experience, they ended up boiling their clothes. And we'll get to how filthy these fucking this Donner party was. But good God. The the stench this this past week, I had to replace my friggin well pump for the second time in the last year. And we had to go without water running water again for a day. And I was thinking about this whole damn, you know, <laughs> journey out west for the Donner Party. I had to go one day without running water. I had to go up to my dad's and take a shower. I had to fill up buckets to come in and flush the toilets in case we had to take a poop. You know, uh, it's just like one day. And, you know, I just couldn't imagine having to go like <clears throat> throughout your life, like struggling to find water unless, you know, had a, a readily available source. Yeah. No, I mean, I... That it's 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 truly something you have to really be grateful for in this day and age. I mean, there's still areas of the world that struggle with 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 running water, things like in India and stuff like that. But like, um, yeah, it, it, we 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 really are. Again, I I think the the most common text I sent to Casey, who's not a huge fan of history, but enjoys some of the little factoids I would send her. My most common text was, God, we live in better times. But. Yeah. But anyway, so, yeah, as I mentioned, disease and and really the the quality of life wasn't wasn't very good. Um, There was, however, uh, some different solutions um, for people who got unsanitary, you know, campgrounds and watering holes, immigrants treated the sick 
with pain medications such as camphor, the oil of the Asian camphor tree, and laudanum, a bitter-tasting, addictive tincture made from opium, but victims often died within a matter of hours, healthy in the morning and dead by noon. For, okay, so this is a quote. For 400 miles, the road was almost a solid graveyard, recalled George Tribble, who traveled in Oregon in 1852. At one camp... Ground, I counted 71 graves. Of 10 Tribble um, family members, I'm sorry, of 10 Tribble family members who started west, only five reached Oregon. So you got a 50 50 shot, as I said. Most trailside cholera graves are unmarked, but one that is known belongs to 25 year old George Winslow, who died on June 8, 1849, near present day Fairbury, Nebraska. Symptoms struck Winslow as his party crossed Kansas, not long after jumping off onto his, the trail. His company continued west, carrying George in a wagon for the next six days. He seemed to be improving, but then a violent thunderstorm struck camp, chilling the sick man. He lingered another week, and a uh, companion bracket lord sadly wrote home, George is dead. His body lays here in the tent, but his spirit has fled. Our company feels deeply saddened, saddened this solemn province. Mm. So, uh, he also said, I never attended so solemn a funeral, but here we are on these plains, hundreds of miles from any civilized being, and to leave one of our number was most trying. And when all he needed was some salt water. I guess I, it, <laughs> or he needed a, a, some fucking laudanum so he could get a quick spike in his step. Winslow's friends buried him deep on a grassy hillside, marked his grave with an inscribed sandstone, sandstone slab and sent word back to his wife and family in Connecticut. Many years later, Winslow's sons relocated the grave site and erected a, um, Erected their own kind of beautiful monument beside the trail swales. Owners of the family farm where uh, the grave lives have protected it in the swales since 1873. But that's a little on the Oregon Trail. That's just the Oregon Trail, folks. That's a that's a hippy dippy regular old fucking I-96 or. I-90 or I-80 or whatever highway you know near you, fair listener. What was the Donner Party up to? Were they going to Oregon or California? California was the dream. That's why we got our cool, hip backgrounds. California was the dream, kiddos. So why did they go? Uh, well... Really, it's it's economic difficulties because at the time there it's weird to think of this, but there was a depression in the country at the time. Um, things just got well, like they did <laughs> do now in some areas. It's probably everywhere, but like when when inflation happens specifically and people are struggling so much, generally the idea of manifest destiny and moving to a new land or, or starting over or finding better opportunities really takes over. 
That's why a lot of people, you know, when the dollar, when the dollar tumbles or, or, or there's, we'll say in the corporate interest, an opportunity for them to save money and they send their companies to Mexico or across Europe, they take these opportunities and it fucks us, but it fucks us all in the long run. But at the end of the day, it's it's a combination of a depression that was happening at the time and the promise of free land. And like I, I had mentioned before about Oregon, it was similar to that because technically once you cross the continental divide, it was all free. This is the Wild West, folks. We're talking Wild West. This is technically not the U.S. at the time. So there was that concept of like, you know, we we can keep going. We can explore. I mean, we can expand. It's the same dream of the pilgrims coming over in the their fucking rinky-dink boats. So, um, the promise of free land and a better climate drew the James Reed and George and Jacob Dahmer, Donner families to travel the California Trail. That's right. This isn't the Oregon Trail. This is the California Trail, and this ain't your mama's California Trail. The idea of this trail also being confounded by this shortcut. We're going to get into this shortcut. This is kind of the antithesis of this episode. Because, folks, I sent this to, to Adam, a.k.a. Danger Zone. Don't take a shortcut if you... If you don't know the person who's giving it to you, especially if you don't trust them. And this is a time where a lot of things were word of mouth. And um, you see, looking at it, it seems sort of silly because at one section, you'd be almost doubling back to your location, according to the map that they were given. Uh, People didn't understand was though the area seemed open. There were others who saw this land and said, Like, there were other travelers. And see, this is the concept of a wagon trail versus, say, mount, you know, frontiersmen or mountain men out there, kind of one horse, one pack. You know, if you're playing Red Dead, it's a lot easier to move around when you're just, you're just the main dude. But the second you get a whole fucking wagon trail, half cholera, half fucking kicked in the head by a mule, you get lost and... You're only as fast as your slowest wagon trail party member. So there's missions you got to go on where you're dragging wagons to. And it's so hard to get away when you're, you know, when you're on a horse, you can just like scoot across the whole map in like three days real time because that's how big those fucking maps are on red (laughs) dude you know the second one's out now you should get that for playstation i would happily play that with you they got an online mode we should i'm i don't give a shit this is on a podcast we need to we need to game share or something and play some red dead together yeah red dead 2 yeah that's out now i heard it's been out that's that's the one i was talking about that i played it on my playstation 4 in virginia but I have a PS5 now, so I have to transfer all my data to it. But I'll, I'll get I, it if you want to play. I don't play video games like I used to. Come on, nerd, nerd it up with me, just like you do with the history. We, I gotta get a, I gotta get a, a fucking external hard drive that can transfer my stuff. I understand. Everything's so big, dude. That the, the memory, you know, just like 
Yeah. One terabyte freaking drives you need. Anyway. I love that we're, we're talking about our gaming woes. And then meanwhile, it's just like, so anyway, this guy's bleeding out of his ass and his fucking head falls off. Um, but no, the, the, <laughs> yeah, right? so, so, uh, anyway, um, so this terrain looks like dog dick and it, it basically, you know, like a, a guy in his, on his own would just be like, yeah, this looks like shit. Thank God there's only me, my horse. And that's it. Not like a whole wagon and family laugh out loud. They'd be dead. So what was the Donner Party's biggest mistake? As I mentioned, this shortcut. The biggest mistake that the Donner Party made as well was leaving for their westward journey too late in the spring. They left almost a month after all wagon trains. And this put them in the Sierra Nevada mountains in the heart of winter. Another mistake was taking, as I mentioned, the Hastings Cutoff, which is your shortcut, in an attempt to find a shortcut. This era led to an additional 125 miles of land across, which decimated their supplies and hastened their starvation. You see, folks, you don't want to add time on a wagon train. <laughs> it's yeah, not and the and the real fucked up thing here is that this Hastings dude mm-hmm. promised, and I don't. You probably mentioned this, but he said it was going to cut three or four hundred miles off their trip. Right. But it ended up adding 125 miles, which back then, that's weeks of travel. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. It's And it's not good. Um, as I said, unless you, I mean, unless you like pork, which is what I hear humans taste like. <laughs> I'm just saying, if you want to eat each other, because uh, you're going to run out of supplies... I mean, like I mentioned it, like you got Indians sniping your either killing or taking your your excess, you know, supplies or cattle or ox. Uh, you've got terrible heat conditions in certain areas. You've got the Salt Lake, like the flats, that, that whole area. I mean, it's basically a desert with no water. It's super, super fucking hot, and nobody's got a margarita to use the salt with. So, legitimately, you are, your animals are running off because they're they're spooked. Because on top of this, the people are seeing mirages in the in the distance. They're like, and and that's not uncommon, especially when you're super dehydrated, malnourished on the trail and you're burning calories. Like I read something where it was like on average, these people were burning and this, this could have been during the snowstorm, but there was one person they were saying they were at minimum because I mean a day you, you burn roughly 2000 ish calories as long as you're not just sitting there playing fucking world of Warcraft. But these people were burning close to 3,600 calories. I mean, you could theoretically get away with eating like five Big Macs and still be skinny. You're, 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 you're burn, burn, burning. And your organs are working overtime too because they're trying to stay alive. So not only are you burning calories, but you're losing fat, which you need to burn. And you're, when you start to get into starvation which kicks in i think around five or six days you're 
mental capacity starts to really shrink as well. So these people are seeing mirages. They're out in the desert. And then they eventually get to the worst snowstorm on record in the last 175 years in Sierra Nevada. But we'll get to that. And also the fact that Walt Disney (laughs) built a snow fucking park on the same spot later. Because corporate interest got the way and Mickey said... Oh boy, let's go sledding, Pluto. Um, during the 19th century, and specifically pre-Civil War times, one-fifth of children died before the age of 10. Most people were used to the chime of church bells and could parse from the chimes the age and gender of the deceased. So as I mentioned, disease, kids dying, people aren't very happy. You have very little to go on, and the idea of getting somewhere could push people to want to venture forth to fertile land and the dream of a, of a, 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 a magical land called California. So with a late start, surely people could double time it with lost time and a rough snow in California. Can't be that bad, right? Like I said... For nearly 175 years, historians, authors, and educators have claimed that the winter of 1846 to 47 was the snowiest in California history. How did it start? Well, a lot of these people met up on the trail. This wasn't just, and I think we talked a a bit with the name, you would think, oh, it was the Donner family. So what, like 13 people? It's like a grandpa george donner and his kids and their their offspring no no what would generally happen in these wagon trains is they would pass from town to town from fort to to farm to strong like kind of little area with little outposts and and sheds and whatnot and a couple loose goats just nibbling on their butts and then they would they'd come across like other people who had heard the news of like, oh, hey, have you heard there's land to claim in Oregon or there's fertile land in California where we can we can start anew. And so in essence, you have these wagons built up. And, and there were things, I mean, you would have these communities of women who would bond and, and, and get together and, and they would work together, say, make meals over campfire and and it does sound very romantic like the idea of of the open air and the trail and like kids you know learning and 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 the good news about kids is and this goes for any parent usually when you have kids they can be a real fucking nuisance when you're on the open road but when they have other kids to preoccupy them it can kind of take the ease it, it cannot ease the travel when it comes to like the haps on the road for the parents and all that um, but this wagon party, it really wasn't just the Donners. Like I said, it was the Reeds, it was the Graves, and you had roughly around 87 people at the height of the party on the, this California trail. Yeah. And they started with what? 31. Right. So it was like dumb and dumber, Harry and Lloyd going across country, pick them up. <laughs> Yep. Well said. Well referenced. Um, So their first bad omen, literally they get this old grandma who's like, hey, um, 
I know I'm not gonna last very long, but I would love to see the open trails. Like, she's literally... If she farts wrong, she's probably dead. And during this time, a fart was probably considered, oh, she's got cholera burner. Um, but, like, this, lady, this grandma makes it, like, two wagon rotations down the road and then dies. She died in Kansas, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it set them back five days. So on top of this, they started late. Uh, the the shortcut's going to set them back at 125 miles or whatever. And then this first person dies and they're like, well, shit. That was like two weeks into it too. Right. It wasn't like, yeah. And they got at least a six month trip. So two weeks into it, they're already losing time. Right. And it sucks because it's like, and let's get into this a little bit too. Cause we're, we're, we're well into our episode here. We're on the, we're on the open trail. Let me talk about a little bit about decorum here, because we're going to start getting into the fatalities on the open trails. So, essentially, when you're when you're on the when you're on the trail with a wagon party, you had you had certain little things. Um, you would have people who were. You know, the men stuck together because they were the ones that were usually keeping the oxes moving, keeping the carts moving, making sure that the weight was distributed properly. And and this wasn't one of those things where, you know, everybody's sitting in the wagon playing Game Boy Advance. Like, you had to walk along the side of the trail. So, like, if you were dead weight, you would fall behind. And people cared about their elderly, and families were tight. Like... Specifically, the Graves family is is the focus in the book, and they were all very good. Like Franklin Graves is, is one of the heroes, I would say, of this story, and we'll get into what happens to him. But essentially, these people were very family oriented, and but when it came to the elderly or even kids that would go missing or things like that, like you could only stand to wait so long. And this grandma, I think kind of shows that like they did care about people, you know, maybe she wanted to breathe some fresh air and get out there and, 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 you know, help swat some mosquitoes for the kids. But like, it does show a kindness that they were still willing to take somebody on when realistically you didn't want to take anything else on because it would drive your oxen to walk slower and extra weight was a big deal. So uh, the as these guys continue down the trail, uh, they started in Missouri and were already soaked with rain and not moving very fast because they started getting pelted with rain. I don't know if you've ever had to work outside, ladies and gentlemen, but as a mailman, it can be one of the most miserable experiences, especially if you're even if you're in a raincoat, because usually the heat in your body is just working overtime because you're still sweating. And it's like a weird trap where you just end up soaked regardless of what you can do to stay dry. Um and these people, I mean, like they didn't have like multiple different p- pairs of clothes, you know, when in the wagon, they'd hang up their day dress and then put on 
maybe a little less at night for sleep, you'd have things like people would essentially, they're not bathing very much. Their clothes aren't getting washed every day because they're trying to move quick. The rain turns the, the ground into mud. The mud gets all over their clothes. People had like stink on them. You know, and it's not like, again, sanitation isn't really a thing. So, like, you know, if you accidentally shit down your bonnet the wrong way, you might be trailing that, like, little dingleberry with you for the rest of the travels. You might have a hot mess of a stink coming off of you and not know isn't that. It, isn't a bonnet on your head? <laughs> or whatever. I, You know what? I'm, shit on your head. <laughs> Hey, you know what? You need face reeks, bro. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you can do that, maybe join the circus. You could make some bucks during the time. Anyway, so I, I'm I'm tangenting a lot. I also in the book they talk specifically about how um, <laughs> they use sheep gut for condoms in the time because people were still fucking. And uh, that was a primary activity, especially for married people, because Sarah Graves, she was married to a guy named Jay who was on the trip. And one of the things they like to do when they're downtime, when they weren't listening to the fiddle player play at night after they put the tarp over the wagon or the cover on the wagon so everybody could sit and listen, they would like hold hands. And usually holding hands led to fucking. And if anyone was fucking, they heard it, but... I think people just kind of got used to it because everybody was used to living in a one bedroom. (laughs) And, uh, but they use sheep gut for condoms. And if, if you know anything about, uh, if you know anything about condoms, one of the nice things is that when you use one, you can take it off and throw it away and put on a new one. These times they're generally using the same sheep gut condom every single time, which they had to wash. Also, that's so fucking disgusting. It is gross. Plus, you had things like you, you, uh, they had different tinctures and different mod modifications when it came to cleaning that, that downstairs area out so that they could clean it out. If the person, you know, was able to, because the yeast infections were pretty rampant and the smell of um, menstruation was another added bonus that I read about in that book. Um, but you know, no, no hate to the, to the, the ladies. I'm sure the fellows weren't smelling very good either, especially if they were shitting on their heads. But, um, so anyway, got it. I could sit and talk about that, that series, that part of the book is so fascinating, but also so disgusting. Continuing yeah, down. I, I, I didn't. I didn't get into any of that uh, in the research that I did about this. Yeah. So, well, but, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, a you know thought in the back of your head when you're traveling across the country like this, but you know you don't really think about it too much. But, right. Yeah, that had to have been gross. It was gross. It was very gross. It. I mean, look, we've all been on long car rides. But this takes it to a new level. And not only that, and I don't think I mentioned this yet, these families didn't necessarily know each other. And it was pretty quick that they were getting on each other's nerves. Because, look, we all put up an air of decorum when we're meeting new people. But 
if there's one thing that will quickly turn people to show their real sides, it's living together. Uh, every little thing from, you know, not fl- not putting the seat down to not, f- you know, putting your shit away. These these little beats, I'm sure, were already starting to get on e- each other's nerves as they're heading down this trail that is not easy to get through. Uh, the 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 Donners and the Reeds didn't get along. They weren't family, and besides having to deal with extra mouths and opinions, it can be hard. Um, people real quick start to show who they are. They did make it smoothly across Wyoming and Nebraska, so there's your brief moment of niceness. In fact, they did nice things at night, and one of them would play his fiddle, and they'd sing songs, and like I said, Sarah Graves and her new husband Jay would hold hands and talk about their dreams in California. They did meet more families on the journey, the Breens, the Murphys, the Eddies, and... uh, Oh, I didn't mention this. The the Graves family were chicken and bee farmers with nine kids. Dude, I think they all had like five, six, ten, eight fucking kids. They, I mean, there was, so there was at the end or, or at the peak, like you said, there was 87. And I, what was it? 48 or so? Little 40, more than it's half 87. children. 87, and then at the very end, it's 46 that survived, and half over half were children. So yeah, so like half the half the half the whole damn party was kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and they're and these are these aren't like you know they're all not all teenagers. They're one, two, three, four, five. They're tons of babies. Yeah, you know, you you're walking across the country. Over a six to eight month period. In the rain, the snow. Infants. Smelling like fucking rotten pennies. And you're, you're, you got a screaming infant. And the only solace you get is a fiddle player and you get to hold your husband's hand. <laughs> Things were easier when we were chicken and bee farmers. And get fucked with a sheep gut. <laughs> Hey, did you wash the sheep gut? Don't stick that shit in me, Carl. <clears throat> Chicken and bee sounds like a carnival taco stand on a 120 degree day. Like Chicken a chicken and, and bee farmer. Chicken, I'll take some chicken and bees. Uh, nevertheless, it was essentially an 80 people deep wagon party. You had Teamsters, which we didn't really mention, single men looking for a group to follow out to California. As uh, Adam alluded to, of the 87, though, 46 would die from starvation, disease, gunshot wound accidents, and at least four murders. The group was by all history known as the Donner Party. And George Donner, known as Uncle, that was his, his nickname, was considered the leader, but James Reed was really secretly in charge. By using the Hastings Cutoff. Now... To promote the new route, Lansford Hastings sent riders to deliver letters to traveling migrants. On July 12th, the Reeds and Donners were given one of them. Hastings warned the migrants they could expect opposition from the Mexican authorities in California and advised them to band together in large groups. 
He also claimed to have worked out a new and better road to California and said he would be waiting at Fort Bridger to guide the migrants along the new cutoff. On July 20th, at the Little Sandy River, most of the wagon train opted to follow the established trail via Fort Hall. A smaller group opted to head for Fort Bridger and needed a leader. Most of the young men in the group were European immigrants and not considered to be ideal leaders. James Reed had lived in the U.S. for a considerable time, was older, and had military experience, but his autocratic attitude had rubbed many in the party the wrong way, and they saw him as aristocratic, imperious, and ostentatious. I will mention some things about James Reed here. He is an interesting character because he gives me the vibe of kind of like almost like the spit and polish Benedict Arnold, like aristocrat vibe, especially during like a, you know, Deadwood era kind of frontiers life. So I could see them being like, well, I don't trust this one. He's fucking weird. He doesn't fuck with the sheep gut. You know, there's some, <laughs> there's some, there's some interesting kind of, kind of, balance happening there and having somebody with a nickname like uncle and being like the friendly i mean i understand where they want somebody more along the lines that they trust more did you hear did did the book mention anything about the reed family wagons because you're you're talking about how double decker yeah, 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 yeah. So you're talking how he's aristocratic. Yeah, so he had these like really extravagant at the time wagons where you had like double decker, like secret bunk you could sleep in, more privacy. But they were, and you alluded to weight earlier, like the weight of these wagons slowed them down exponentially. Yep. Because they're just like full of like just unnecessary shit. Well, well, like heavy, I mean, portable versions of like appliances we all take for granted now but you had these big steel like dutch oven things that they would just pack into these and like it gets to a point here where they're just throwing shit off like one of the girls had to hide a doll in fact it's in like some museum or something she had a little wooden doll that she kept with her but it was like a sign of just something something that was I mean, for all these people in this world that are so materialistic and have so much bullshit, I just say at the end of the day, all I need are my friends and family. You know, I'll figure it out as I go along. I'll start fresh anywhere. And uh, they did rather quickly get rid of of excess baggage, especially after they started losing a lot of their livestock. So... Uh, By comparison, the mature, experienced, American-born Donner's peaceful demeanor, I think, and charitable nature made him the group's first choice. George Donner. While the members of the party were comfortably well-off by contemporary standards, most of them were inexperienced in long, difficult overland travel. Additionally, the party had little knowledge about how to interact with Native Americans. Journalist Edwin Bryant reached Black Forks a week ahead of the Donner Party. He saw the first part of the trail and was concerned that it would be difficult for the wagons in the Donner Group, especially with so many women and children. He returned to Black Forks to leave letters warning several members of the group not to take Hastings' shortcut. By the time the Donner Party reached Black Forks on July 27th, Hastings had already left, leading the 40 wagons of the Harlan Young Group. 
because Jim Bridger's trading post would fare substantially better if people used the Hastings cutoff, Bridger told the party that the shortcut was a smooth trip. Come on, motherfucker. That makes me so mad. It just shows you that people... Sometimes, you know, it's like... It's like all the credit card companies in America. All the places that want you to sign up for their their low interest, you know, rate. You get six months and then you can pay it off. And then, like, they jack the rate, the interest rates up to, like, 200% or these cash back <laughs> places. It's the same bullshit, you know. It, and it's been going on since the dawn of man. There was somebody in medieval fucking Europe that was selling rocks with googly eyes on them for, like, all you had on you and taking it. And this just shows that it's been there forever, folks. Um, as I said, so they reached Black Forks July 27th, um, and the trading post was bullshit. Bridger told the party that the shortcut was a smooth trip, devoid of rugged country and hostile Native Americans, and would therefore shorten their journey by 350 miles. Water would be easy to find along the way, although a couple of days crossing a 30 to 40 mile dry lake bed would be necessary. Um, Reed was very impressed with this information and advocated for the Hastings cutoff. None of the party received Bryant's letters warning them to avoid Hastings route at all cost. In his diary account, Bryant states his conviction that Bridger deliberately concealed the letters. A view, a view shared by Reed in his later testimony. At I Fort, wanted to make a couple bucks. Yeah. At Fort Laramie, Reed met an old man, uh, oh, sorry, old friend named James Clayman, Clyman, who was coming from California. Clyman warned Reed not to take the Hastings cutoff, telling him that wagons would not be able to make it and the Hastings information was inaccurate. Fellow, fellow pioneer J- Jesse Quinn Thornton traveled part of the way with Donner and Reed and in his book from Oregon and California in 1848 declared Hastings the Baron Munchausen of travelers in these countries. Tamsin Donner, according to Thornton, was gloomy, sad, and dispirited at the thought of advice from Hastings. She didn't like it. She just considered what are these selfish, no, no, you know, city-dwelling, no no good having folks want to do with our wagon party and have this information. This is just a pamphlet. We're just looking at a... We're just reading some goofballs bullshit. We need to We need to be smart. Tamsin knew it, and it's sad. <laughs> we'll get into more of what's about to happen here, but on July 31st, 1846, the Donner Party left Black Forks after four days of rest and wagon repairs, 11 days behind the leading Harlan Young Group. Donner hired a replacement driver, and the company was joined by the McCutcheon family, consisting of William Thirty, his wife Amanda, and their two-year-old daughter Harriet and a 16-year-old named Jean-Baptiste Trudeau from New Mexico, who claimed to have knowledge of the Native Americans and train on the way to California. And this is a good aspect to have, especially on the open trails, is somebody who, who knows how to communicate with the Native Americans. Um, yeah, so I said William 30, his wife Amanda, she was 24. The party turned south to follow the Hastings cutoff. So after all these warning signs, just so you know, there were warnings. People did say, hey, 
Hey, hey, you're not gonna make it. You're not, hey guys, construction, detour, detour, detour. Go this way, go, turn around, turn around, turn around. As every wagon trail went the other way, like these guys were like, hey man, it's a cutoff. Let's try it. Yeah. And this is, it, you know, up until now, they had a relatively smooth trip. And we're talking, what, we're three months into the trip now? Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's been relatively smooth. Yeah, there's been a, you know, the Syracuse death and a little bumpy here and there. And, you know, obviously the smell of sheepskin condoms and shit like that. But totally. Then this is where this was kind of the turning point, I think, for this whole thing. And mm-hmm. I don't want to take any of your thunder, but no, they, go ahead. When Reed decided to against the, the warnings and everything that they they got and they still went with the Hastings cutoff, mm-hmm. Hastings cutoff. Like this is where shit really went south. Yeah. For all these people. Like this was the turning point of this. We if they had not taken the Hastings cutoff, the Donner Party, we wouldn't even be talking about it because it would have never been a story. Right. But this is this is where it just really the whole shit goes down. Go on. So <laughs> thank you for setting me up. Danger Zone, you are my brother. Hastings wrote directions and left uh, letters stuck to trees. On August 6th, the party found a letter from him advising them to stop until he could show them an alternate route to to that taken by the Harlan Young party. So there there was the party ahead, and there were people who were like... There was some conscience in Hastings to be like, Fuck! This is not as good as I thought. Um, Read Charles... T. Stanton and William Pike rode ahead to get Hastings. They encountered exceedingly difficult canyons where boulders had to be moved and walls cut off precariously to a river below, a route likely to break wagons. In his letter, Hastings had offered to guide the Donner Party around the more difficult areas, but he rode back only partway, indicating the general direction to follow. Stanton and Pike stopped to rest, and Reed returned alone to the group, arriving four days after the party's departure, without the guide they had been promised. The group had decided whether to turn back and rejoin the traditional trail following the tracks left by the Harlan Young party through the difficult terrain of Weber Canyon, or forge their own trail in the direction that Hastings had recommended. At Reed's urging, the group chose the new Hastings route. Again... They're like, well, we got to try it. Everything's saying don't do it. But you know what? I want to do it. Their progress slowed to about one and a half miles a day. All able-bodied men were required to clear brush, fell trees, and heave rocks to make room for the wagons. So this is slow going. You're literally building the fucking Eisenhower interstate system by hand <laughs> he's not wrong I mean, folks you're 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 making a road to go and at the same time you're it just one it's, mile a day you know how long 5,280 feet right if you if that's all you're moving in one day all right that's insane that's insane it is 
and you're 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 tiring people out too and people's nerves are shot because they're already like we've been on the we've been on this trail three months i don't like the donners the reeds don't like the donner or the reeds don't like the donners the donners don't like the reeds everybody's just fucking up each other's ass smelling like shit and now they're making a road on top of walking a trail this sucks so as the donner party made its way across the wasatch ranch wasatch Wasatch Range of the Rocky Mountains, the Graves family who'd set off to find them reached them. They consisted of Franklin Ward Graves, his wife Elizabeth, their children Mary, William, Eleanor, Lavina, Nancy, Jonathan, Franklin Jr., Elizabeth, and married daughter Sarah, who is the subject and the main focus of the book. She was 22 and married to Jay Fostick, 23 and a 25-year-old teamster named John Snyder traveling together in three wagons. Their arrival brought the Donner Party to 87 members in 60 to 80 wagons. The Graves Graves family had been part of the last group to leave Missouri, confirming the Donner Party was at the back of the year's western exodus. It was August 20th by the time they reached a point in the mountains where they could look down and see the Great Salt Lake. It took almost another two weeks to travel out of the Wasatch Range. The men began. I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> Look at that lake. <laughs> I'm just saying, the Salt Lake, it's like, I can't think of a more miserable time than this. Other than the the snow and being we we live in the fucking lake effect range, the two of us like we know snow, but oh yeah, but this 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 sucked. The men were arguing and doubts were expressed about the wisdom of those who had chosen the route, in particular Reed. So Reed's on everybody's last nerve. Food and supplies began to run out. Some of the from the. Uh, some of the less affluent families. Stanton and Pike had ridden out with Reed, but had become lost on their way back. By the time that the party found them, they were a day away from eating their horses. Luke Halloran died of consumption on August 25th. A few days later, the party came across a torn and tattered letter from Hastings. The pieces indicated there were two days and nights of difficult travel ahead without grass or water. The party rested their oxen and prepared for the trip. After 36 hours, they set out to traverse a thousand-foot mountain that lay in their path. From its peak, they saw ahead of them a dry, barren plain, perfectly flat and covered with white salt. And this salt got in everything. Like I said, your clothes aren't clean, so it's everything sticking to it. The, the, the ox are, like, thirsty. You're trying to, to suss your... to basically give as much water as you can to your family, but also to the animals. So like your supplies dwindle quick. As I said, it's flat. And this is where people were seeing mirages off in the distance, you know, like maybe like the Hawaiian tropics girls for one of the teamsters. He's like, man, I picked the wrong, wrong goddamn wagon train, brother. Should have stayed in Kansas City. Um, Dude, when when you're driving, so you asked me earlier if I'd been over here. So when you take I-80 through Utah uh, and you go through the Salt Lake, 
area, desert, the salt flats, right? Mm-hmm. There's, I, I remember this vividly. Uh, so you're driving and you see all these tire tracks going off the interstate and down into the salt flats. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're everywhere. And you're driving for a hundred miles and you just, you just keep seeing like, why are all these people like going off the road? Well, apparently, apparently, and if you're from Utah and listening to this shit, this is what I heard, but apparently it's something fun for people to do where they'll be fucking flying down 80 in the middle of the night and they just fucking go off the road and just go bahan through the salt flats <laughs> and then they get back up onto the fucking interstate and there's no cops you know right. it's just like 100 miles of you know nothing mm-hmm. but I, I i i was saying to dane i'm like dude what look at fucking all these tire tracks and i think he was driving so i was looking it up googling it like why why are all these tire tracks going through like great salt lake desert and but apparently funny. people fly off the road for fun and like fucking do fast and the furious and then get back on the highway and go they get to do their own little Grand Theft Auto Salt Lakes version. I get it. Yeah, I mean, but it's flat, it's dry, it's just, there's, yeah, that would suck crossing that with 80 wagons. And yeah, and everybody's yeah. pissing and moaning the whole way. So, yeah. so they continue on. Uh, it was, according to Rarick. Uh, on the journey, he said it was one of the most inhospitable places on earth. Their oxen were already fatigued and their water was nearly gone. The Donner Party pressed onward on August 30th, having no alternative. In the heat of the day, the moisture underneath the salt crust rose to the surface and turned it into a gummy mass. The wagon wheels sank into it and in some cases up the hubs. The days were blisteringly hot and nights frigid that is always the interesting part about the desert is how cold it gets at night several of the group saw visions of lakes and wagon trains and believed they had finally overtaken hastings after three days the water was gone and some of the party removed their oxen from the wagons to press ahead to find more some of the animals were so weakened they were left yoked to the wagons and abandoned nine of reed's ten oxen nine of ten broke free, crazed with thirst, and bolted off into the desert. Many other families, cattle and horses, had also gone missing. The rigors of the journey resulted in irreparable damage to some of the wagons, but no human lives had been lost. Instead of the promised two-day journey over 40 miles, the journey across the 80 miles of Great Salt Lake Desert took six. Two days to six. Two days to six. More wasted time. Yeah. None of the party had any remaining faith in the Hastings cutoff as they recovered at the springs on the other side of the desert. They spent several days trying to recover cattle, retrieve the wagons left in the desert, and transfer their food and supplies to other wagons. Reed's family incurred the heaviest losses, and Reed became more assertive, asking all the families to submit an inventory of their goods and food to him. He suggested that two men should go to Sutter's Fort in California. He had heard that John Sutter was exceedingly generous to wayward pioneers and could assist them with extra provisions. Charles Stanton and William McCutcheon volunteered to undertake the dangerous trip. The remaining serviceable wagons were pulled by mongrel teams of cows, oxen, and mules. It was the middle of September, and two young men who went in search of mixing oxen reported that another 40 miles of desert lay ahead. 
Their cattle and oxen were now exhausted and lean, but the Donner Party crossed the next stretch of desert relatively unscathed. The journey seemed to get easier, particularly through the valley next to the Ruby Mountains. Despite their near hatred of Hastings, they had no choice but to follow his tracks, which were weeks old. On September 26, two months after embarking the cutoff, the party rejoined the traditional trail along a stream that became known as the Humboldt River. The shortcut had probably delayed them by a month. Along the Humboldt River, the group met Palute Native Americans, or sorry, Paiute Native Americans, who joined them for a couple of days but stole or shot several oxen and horses. Jeez, guys. Can we just get along, smoke our yeah. pipes? It's just getting worse and worse for these guys. There was a part in the book where I remember somebody like was talking about like a Native American just like pulling up on a wagon and seeing like a young, beautiful woman, like a you know, teen woman ish, nineteen, twenty, and being like, Oh, white man, I'll give you many stalks of corn for your woman. And having to like show them his revolver and then being like Burr! and like running off and being pissed off. So they they would run into these instances with Indians where like the communication would be you know hardly there and they would try to barter with them and then also half the time not even know if they can trust them. And I get it. I mean these are the people that knew the way of the land and Unfortunately, you didn't have them all integrated into this group, especially when it came to the, some of the terrain we're about to head into here. So, this is where we get to Moider. Two wagons in the remaining group became tangled, and John Snyder angrily beat the ox of Reed's hired teamster, Milt Elliott. When Reed intervened, Snyder proceeded to rain blows down onto his head with a whip handle. When Reed's wife attempted to intervene, she too was struck. Reed retaliated by fatally plunging a knife under Snyder's collarbone. And this was not the way you wanted things to go. Because John Snyder was not only a cool cucumber when it came to the rest of the wagon party, and Reed was kind of considered the piece of dog shit of the group, having somebody die especially from murder just because you know your fucking horses and or your oxen get all tangled up is kind of a shitty way for things to go at this point especially when people are irritated and the women got to gossiping and things weren't good and pioneer frontier law isn't going to be too kind on reed that evening the witnesses gathered to discuss what was to be done American laws were not applicable west of the Continental Divide in what was then Mexican territory, and wagons trains often dispensed their own justice, but George Donner, the party's leader, was a full day ahead of the main wagon train with his family. Snyder had been seen to hit Reed, and some claimed he had also hit his wife, but Snyder had been popular and Reed was not. Kesselberg suggested that Reed should be hanged, but an eventual compromise allowed Reed to leave the camp without his family, who were to be taken care of by the others. Reed departed alone the next morning, unarmed, but his stepdaughter Virginia rode ahead and secretly provided him with a rifle and food. 
That's got to be hard to leave your family behind. I mean, yeah, you just basically, you know, you murdered somebody. Um, right. No, you know, I mean, it, this is. Yeah, no, this this sucks. It, it sucks. It, it but it given the circumstances, I'm not surprised how this plays out. What is the because I don't know the answer to this because it wasn't answered in any of the shit that I read or watched. Like mm-hmm. what? Why didn't they all all the reads like go? Why? Because just James. Well, they could. I mean, they could, could they really force the the what was it Margaret and their children to, to stay? Like, why come think, they didn't all go? I think they had gone. Essentially, I think they had gone far so far together, and I think he saw the writing on the wall. In this instance, if he could get ahead anyways, he could report back. And, and and he does come back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Not on not only does he come back, he comes back with reinforcements to be part of one of the one of the uh rescue groups. He even fights in a war, in the war at the time. Um but I think the idea was that if I can get ahead, maybe I can do better. If I leave the group and I'll know where they are, I know who they're traveling with. I don't want to spill any more blood. I don't want to, you know, regardless of the shitty situation, I think it was just one of those things where it was like, look, if these guys are going to get there and I can go ahead and, and kind of get the one up on the group anyways, it's only going to help. Because I think even he could probably sense that traveling in in any sort of group, even as a family, as a group, you're gonna you're gonna be slowed down. But he could make serious headway on his own. So that would be my only explanation. I don't think it really got into it too far in the book. It was just more focused on the murder and his being exiled. The trials that the Donner Party had so far endured resulted in splintered groups, each looking out for themselves and distrustful of the others. Grass was becoming scarce and the animals were steadily weakening. To relieve the animals' load, everyone was expected to walk. Kesseberg ejected Hardcoop from his wagon, telling the elderman that he had to walk or die. So there was an old man. This is another one of the deaths. Uh, a few days later, Hardcoop sat next to a stream, his feet so swollen they had split open. He was not seen again. In fact, one of the last things they said is they looked back and they could just see this old man sit down and uh, probably light up his clay pipe and just say, I guess this is where I get off, which is sad, but it's true, you know, and it it's telling of how difficult the journey was that they couldn't double back. They'd already been so late there. They had to take some of the, some of, some of that weight off the wagons. Yeah. And this hard coop dude was 70 years old. Yeah. I mean, he was just, you know, old timer and old they time. just left him there on the side of the wagon trail. William Eddy pleaded with the others to find him, but they all refused, swearing they would waste no more resources in a man who was almost 70. Meanwhile, Reed caught up with the Donners and proceeded with one of his teamsters, Walter Heron. The two shared a horse and were able to cover 25 to 40 miles per day. 
The rest of the party rejoined the Donners, but their hardship continued. Native Americans chased away all of Graves' horses, and another wagon was left behind. With the grass in short supply, the cattle spread out more, which allowed the Paiutes to steal 18 more during one evening. Several mornings later, they shot another 21. How many cattle did they have starting out? Do you know? Because I don't. I've seen the numbers that they lost, but I never found out how much they actually started with. So they lost 100 cattle at this point now. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean. It's an obscene amount. I mean, this is this is the tough part about it. These people did prepare for the worst case scenario. And they did take things with them. In fact, the graves themselves had a box that they kept hidden in one of their wagons of different types of currency. Because you also got to remember that this is a different time in the world. So they had like. Spanish doubloons, fucking Mexican dineros, American dollars, all all different types of things just to just to to make sure that they had something. And it's it's the type of stuff you would think, you know, encrypt my data, take my external hard drives, back up my iCloud, all the all the all the precautions you would think to take. They took a ton of livestock. They took a ton of water they took they took their rest in when they got it but the elements just just keep on fucking them <laughs> you know um so the company had lost nearly a hundred oxen and cattle and their rations were almost completely depleted with nearly all his cattle gone wolfinger stopped at the humboldt sink to cache slash bury his wagon Reinhardt and Spitzer stayed behind to help. They returned without him, reporting they had been attacked by Paiutes and he had been killed. One more stretch of desert lay ahead. The Eddie's oxen had been killed by Native Americans and they were forced to abandon their wagon. The family had eaten all their stores, but the other families refused to assist their children. The Eddie's were forced to walk, carrying their children and, mis- and miserable with thirst. So not only are you walking... And not carrying all your supplies in a wagon, but you're carrying your goddamn kids. Or probably covered in boogies, you know, sticking their, giving you wet willies, sticking their finger in your ear. And you're like, God damn it. God damn it, Ezekiel. Leave me alone. I got to deal with flies and your mom. I don't need you fucking braiding my beard. Margaret Reed and her children were also now without a wagon, but the desert soon came to an end and the party found the Truckee River in beautiful, lush country. And Adam, you mentioned you'd been there. It was a pretty beautiful place, huh? Yeah, dude. Uh, it's really pretty. That uh, that whole drive going through, like, Sierras and then going into, you know, like Reno and cutting across, like, the northern half of... Uh, Nevada and into Utah uh just really really pretty for for a kid from New York you know I feel like I'm pretty well traveled I've been around the world a little bit I've been to pretty much every little nook and cranny of the United States but that's a pretty cool place um just views that we don't have out here on the east coast that's cool man I know upstate New York is very beautiful too yeah, I mean, Even but it's Iceland, something I'm used to. 
even places we lived, like Iceland and Greece, were were gorgeous in, in spots. I mean, the whole world is a great place, and you should travel, ladies and gentlemen. So, yeah, definitely. The company had little time to rest. They pressed on to cross the Sierra Nevada before the snows came. Stanton, one of the two men who had left a month earlier to seek assistance in California, found the company. He brought mules and food from Sutter's Fort and two Native American guides employed by John Sutter. These Miwok men from the Casamens uh, River area were known by the Catholic conversion names Louis and Salvador. Stanton also brought news that Reed and Heron, although haggard and starving, had succeeded in reaching Sutter's Fort. By this point, according to Rarick, to the bedraggled, half-starred members of the Donner Party, it must have seemed that the worst of their problems had passed. They had already endured more than many immigrants ever did. Faced with one last push over mountains that were described as much, much worse than the Wasatch Range, the Donner Party had to decide whether to forge ahead or rest their cattle. It was October 20th, and they had been told the pass would not be snowed in until the middle of November. William Pike was killed when a gun being loaded by William Foster was discharged negligently. <laughs> R.I.P. But man, how many gun mishaps happened in the Wild West? So this fucking guy, William Foster, was played by Crispin Glover in the Donner Party movie that I watched. I think I told you about it. I'm not sure if you watched yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I Crispin saw Glover, he's got that really timid... Like he he plays the same character as he did in as George McFly. He plays like this really timid, like like he's just a he's not good with guns. I think mm -hmm. um Stan I think it's Stanton in the beginning or one of them. Um, but anyway, he's the one who's uh who's got the rifle and 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 Foster can't he doesn't handle guns and right. so. Yeah, he just like shoots this guy on accident. It, like, what the fuck are you doing? Point that shit away from. Fucking... Come on, you knucklehead! Are you gonna scope yourself next? So, an event what that's <laughs> fucking guy. Come on, it's just like <laughs> fucking gun safety one on one, dude. All right, so. Uh... Uh, this event seemed to make the decision for them. Family by family, they resumed their journey. First the Breens, then the Kesselbergs, Stanton with the Reeds, Graves, and the Murphys. The Donners waited and traveled last. After a few miles of rough terrain, an axle broke on one of their wagons. Jacob and George Donner went into the woods to fashion a replacement. George Donner sliced his hand open while chiseling the wood, but it seemed a superficial wound. But it's bad. Because it's going to slowly start to get infected. Snow began to fall. They didn't have Bacitracin out there in the <laughs> mountains? No. They didn't no have Band-Aids? <laughs> Here, Susan, give me your sheep gut. Let me cover my hand. Ugh. <laughs> Still got juice on it. The Breens made it up the massive, ver nearly vertical slope, 1,000 feet to Truckee Lake, now known as Donner Lake. Three miles from the summit and camped near a cabin that had been built two years earlier by three members of the Stephen Townsend Murphy party. The Eddies and the Kesselbergs joined the Breens, attempting to make it over the pass, but they found five to ten foot snowdrifts. 
and were unable to find the trail. They turned back for Truckee Lake, and within a day, all the families were camped there except for the Donners, who were five mil- miles, half a day's journey below them. On the evening of November 4, it began to snow again. Ooh! That's a that's a lot of snow, man. I mean, like you said at the beginning, five to er, ten er, drift, little bit. feet drifts, yeah. Yeah, so like you're from Grand Rapids area. I'm from Syracuse area. We're both uh, used to the lake effect snow, and we get nor'easters and stuff uh, more a little more frequently than you do. But we're, we're used to, you know, a good dump in a snow, one mm-hmm. two feet. Mm-hmm. But five, you know, five to ten the is- shit that the. Sh- the shit that they say, like my house, where I'm at, I'm 900 feet above sea level. Um, we get about 120 inches of snow per year. It's about 10 feet over the course of three or four months. These guys, the, the fucking Sierra Nevadas, dude, they get feet every single day for three to four months. So they're looking at, you know, just massive amounts of snowfall, mm-hmm. uh, it, which is really difficult to deal with today with our technology yeah now we're talking you know 180 years ago when they didn't have shit like how the fuck are they supposed to do anything there was no roads going through the mountains there was nothing plowed you know sanded salted they got wagons horses cattle they're not moving they're stuck right yeah it, it just absolutely terrifying fucking scenario yeah and it's the worst winter in 175 years as i stated so these guys sensing something was up 60 members and associates of the Breen Graves, Reed, Murphy, Kesseberg, and Eddie family set up for winter at Truckee Lake. Three widely separated cabins of pine logs served as their homes with dirt floors and poorly constructed flat roofs that leaked when it rained. The Breens occupied one cabin, the Eddies and the Murphys another, and the Reeds and the Graves the third. Kesseberg built a lean to for his family against the side of the Breen cabin. The families used canvas or oxhide to patch the faulty roofs. The cabins had no windows or doors, only large holes to allow entry. Of the 60 at Truckee Lake, 19 were men over age 18, 12 were women, and 29 were children, six of whom were toddlers or younger. Farther down the trail, closer to Alder Creek, the Donner families hastily constructed tents to house 21 people, including Miss Wolfinger, her child, and the Donner's drivers, six men, three women, and 12 children in all. It began to snow again on the evening of November 4th, the beginning of a storm that lasted eight days. I like it when it snows and then it stops after a couple hours. Eight fucking days? Fuck me That's sideways. Like, I, I love snow. I, I love mm-hmm. being back home and be, dealing with, even though we haven't really had a bad winter yet since I moved home. But I, but I love snow. Fucking bring it on. Right. But, I mean, the one or two days, you know, if you get 20, 30 inches of snow, like, all right, that's enough. Like, let's 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 wrap it up here, Mother Nature. <laughs> got fucking shit to do. I got to walk down to the end of the driveway and get my mail. Come on. I know. Like I get I, it. I got my snowmobile stuck in my driveway this past, last winter, I guess. Um, the fucking drifts in my uh, driveway were like 36 inches deep. And I, I literally, I was like, I'm going to bomb through there on my snowmobile. And I fucking just like buried it. 
Took me like two hours to dig myself out of it. It was so stupid. My dad couldn't get up the driveway with the plow. It was horrible. <laughs> I, can, I can just see your dad out there hooting and hollering, jumping up and down like Yosemite Sam. Oh, dude. It's just whatever. But I love snow. But yeah, I'm with you. After a little while, like, let's cut it off. We got to do shit. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody's got to make a trip to fucking Aldi or whatever and get some sarsaparillas. So... By the time the party made camp, very little food remained from the supplies that Stanton had brought back from Sutter's Fort. The oxen began to die, and their carcasses were frozen and stacked. Truckee Lake was not yet frozen, but the pioneers were unfamiliar with catching lake trout. Eddie, the most experienced hunter, killed a bear, but had little luck with after that. And that shit, that part of the book was fucking insane. Like, killing the bear. Like, big ups to Eddie for that kill, because that was not easy. I mean, an 800-pound bear in a pounding snowstorm, that man has balls the size of the moon. Um, The Reed and Eddie families had lost almost everything. Margaret Reed promised to pay double when they got to California for the use of the three oxen from the Graves and Breen families. Graves charged Eddie $25, normally the cost of two healthy oxen, for the carcass of an ox that had starved to death. So, supplies dwindled. Desperation grew in camp and some reasoned that individuals might succeed in navigating the pass where the wagons could not. In small groups, they made several attempts, but each time returned defeated. Another severe storm lasting more than a week covered the area so deeply that the cattle and horses, their only remaining food, died and were lost in the snow. Patrick Breen began keeping a diary on November 20th, he concerned himself primary with, primarily with the weather, marking the storms and how much snow had fallen, but gradually began to include references to God and religion in his entries. So people's minds are starting to really drift here. People are starting to get really fucking concerned. Like, not only did the shortcut and all the, all the, the, the signs that led to this, this coming really start to, 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 play on them physically but mentally you're starting to really start to go whoa maybe we should have stayed in Missouri fellas, ladies, gentlemen boys and girls because I think everything right now is telling us we're fucked yeah I would have been second guessing myself the whole damn time I mean I would have been second guessing myself at the Salt Lake Flats, I think I would have just got on my horse and grabbed my wife and said, peace. But, um... Yeah, go back to Wyoming, wait it out a couple months, yeah. have a couple fucking whiskeys, like, yeah. just chill out. Have you know, couple. but that's, it's, it's fuck. just think about it for a second. They're in the middle of the mountain. There's tons of snow. There's no light. I mean, there's nothing, you know, except fire, you know, campfire, mm-hmm. you know, light, shit like that. I mean, maybe. Well, they with some... eight eight days of snow, it's not like you can keep a real good campfire going either. I mean, there was one of them. One of the, the cabins was built into the side of a rock formation. So they were able to like because you have to be able to like get the smoke to excite like you're you're building like a. Like some sort of a chute to carry the smoke out. Um I saw that. I watched the um, 
I watched a YouTube. I think the channel was like called Ask a Mortician or something. Mm-hmm. And she did a thing and, and she showed that rock that the cabin was built up against a big flat. Yeah. 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 I know what you're talking about. But but it, it you have to have some sort of exhaust for all the smoke, especially because you can't really, like I said, the eight days of snow and then another snow and another snow and another snow. And it doesn't stop, folks. I'm, I'm just going to tell you now, spoiler alert, it keeps snowing. You can't really have a fire out in that those conditions and you have to build it inside so visibility is nil and we're going to get into snow blindness as that starts to come up as we get into the forlorn hope which was the name of one of the groups that decided that they were gonna they were gonna press on old fucking franklin graves and his party um with a name like forlorn hope you know that this isn't going to be a good thing either so Truckee Lake. Life at Truckee Lake was miserable. The cabins were cramped and filthy, and it snowed so much that people weren't able to go outdoors for days. Diet soon consisted of oxide, strips of which were boiled to make a disagreeable glue-like jelly. So they're eating like glue. In the cold, in sitting on dirt, freezing their asses off with dead animals everywhere. Ox and horse bones were boiled repeatedly to make soup, which I guess, I mean, you get bone marrow out of a bone. If you, you can make it bite in, you can be able to bite into it at that point. They became so brittle that they would crumble upon chewing. Sometimes they were softened by being charred and eaten. Bit by bit, the Murphy children picked apart the oxide rug that lay in front of their fireplace, roasted it in the fire and ate it. After the departure of the snowshoe party slash the forlorn hope, two-thirds of the migrants at Truckee Lake were children. Miss Graves was in charge of eight, and Lavina Murphy and Eleanor Eddy together took care of nine. Migrants caught and ate mice that strayed into their cabins. Many were soon weakened and spent most of their time in bed. Occasionally, one would be able to make the full-day trek to see the Donners. News came that Jacob Donner and three hired men had died. One of them, Joseph Reinhardt, confessed on his deathbed that he had murdered Wolfinger. George Donner's hand had become infected, which left four men to work at the Donner camp. Margaret Reed had managed to save enough food for a Christmas pot of soup. To the delight of her children, but by January they were facing starvation and considered eating the ox hides that served as their roof. Margaret Reed, Virginia Reed, Milt Elliott, and the servant girl Eliza Williams attempted to walk out, reasoning that it would be better to try to bring food back than sit and watch the children starve. They were gone for four days in the snow before they had to turn back. Their cabin was now uninhabitable. The ox hide roof served as their food supply and the family moved in with the brains. The servants went to live with other families. One day the Graveses came to be came by to collect on the debt owed by the Reeds and took the oxides all that the family had to eat. And here's where we get to the forlorn hope. It was Antonio, Luis, Salvador, Charles Berger, Frank, uh, sorry, Patrick Dolan, William Eddy, Jay Fostick, Sarah Fostick, Sarah Foster, William Foster, Franklin Graves, who was the elder statesman of the group at 57. Marianne Graves, uh, Lemuel Murphy, William Murphy, Amanda McCutcheon, 
Harriet Pike and Charles Stanton. The youngest of this group was William Murphy at 10 years of age. The mountain party at Truckee Lake began to fail. Augustus Spitzer and Bayless Williams, a driver for the Reeds, died more than more for malnutrition than starvation. Franklin Graves fashioned 14 pairs of snowshoes out of oxbows and hide, which I got to give it to Franklin for that idea because it was really him who, who was like, look, we're not all going to fucking die here. Everybody's eating their goddamn roofs. We got to get through this mountain pass, get to the other side, get to the fort, get to the farm, get to some sort of resources and save these fucking kids. And uh, it was a good I, idea. It was a good idea. The snowshoes were a really good idea. But here's the problem. Ten feet of snow, every single te- step you take, your foot goes down into that snow. And you got to have the energy to bring that fucker right back up and do another one and another one and another one. Like I said, like 3,600 calories worth of burning and churning throughout the day. And your internal organs are already trying to fight the cold. And these people didn't have much for clothing. I mean, they're starved, they're half naked, they look like zombies. This party of 17 men, women, and children set out on foot in an attempt to cross the mountain pass. As evidence of how grim their choices were, four of the men were fathers, three of them women who were mothers, gave their young children to other women. They packed lightly, taking what had become six days rations, a rifle, a blanket each, a hatchet, and some pistols, hoping to make their way to Bear Valley. Historian Charles McGlashan later called this snowshoe party the forlorn hope. Two of those without snowshoes, Charles Berger and 10-year-old William Murphy, so the kid had no snowshoes, turned back early on. Other members of the party fashioned a pair of snowshoes for 12-year-old Lemuel Murphy on the first evening from one of their pack saddles they were carrying. The snowshoes proved to be awkward but effective on the arduous climb. The members of the party were were neither well-nourished nor accustomed to camping in snow 12 feet. And by the third day, were mostly snow-blind. Now, snow-blindness happens when UVB rays go into the eye. And basically, if you stare at it too long, this is why sunglasses are important. You do need them, and they are a great modern convenience. Your eye, you can become permanently blind, especially in this type of temperature, because when the snow, the sun came up and you're, you're, they'll say keeping your head down because the snowflakes are flipping, flapping in your eyeballs. All you're hearing, all you see is white and snow and it just fucking blinds you. I, I, I remember this specifically from the time when we lived in Iceland when the sun would come out and beam down on the, the snow or even the Michigan winters I, I lived in growing up. I can remember being like, God damn, when the sun would come out. On the sixth day, Eddie discovered his wife had hidden a half pound of bear meat in his pack. The group set out again the morning of December 21st. Stanton had been straggling for several days and he remained behind saying he would follow shortly. His remains were found at that location the following year. The group became lost and confused after two more days without food. Patrick Dolan proposed one of them should volunteer to die in order to feed the others. Oh, the Irishman. Hey, uh, my name's uh, Patrick Dolan. I've got an idea here. We can make a shepherd's pie out of the little one. 
I, you know, the, <laughs> the fucking oh. look with a name like Patrick Dolan. That's horrible. Hey, calm down. Making shepherd's pie out of little Lemuel. Oh god. So, where they get potatoes? I'm I'm just look. <laughs> some of the I best. Know, I'm just a fucking video. Uh, but when I was in Dublin, Ireland's a beautiful country. You should definitely go and see. I did have myself a killer, killer Guinness and a and a and a, a meal of shepherd's pie, and it was delicious. So, shout That's outs one of my to my favorite. <clears throat> Me too. Uh, so this is they're already getting into this where they're like, man, I don't know about you, but some human some human jerky sounds good right about now. Some suggested a duel, while another account describes an attempt to create a lottery to choose a member to sacrifice. In fact, it was Patrick Dolan who drew the short stick on that one, and he was like, hey, did they, did they, did they, did they, did they. Let's take a minute here, fellas. Let's not get irrational. Eddie suggested... That sucks. <laughs> well, he pulled that short stick after with the idea, and he's just like... This is... Look, let's let's talk about a few other ideas, hey? What, what about the guy who said something about a duel? I, I don't know. Eddie suggested they keep moving until someone simply fell, but a blizzard forced the group to halt. Antonio, the animal handler, was the first to die... Franklin Graves was the next casualty, which sucks. I mean, his daughters are with him, and they have to watch him die. And uh, full disclosure, he said, eat me so that you can survive. And I would yeah, tell my kids that was the in same. The, that was in the movie that I watched, the, the Donner Party movie. He he uh, said, yeah, he, he, I, I feel like, did he kill himself on purpose? No, 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 no. But no, I mean, in, in the movie, in the movie, I, I think he... Killed himself on purpose. He stabbed himself in the heart or, yeah, or that's in the not, gut. No, it wasn't didn't. like what actually happened. It was just dramatic. I think it, I think in the movie he did off himself and then told his daughters to eat him. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it sucks. Um, but they, when they died, it really did become kind of like, you know, the light is gone. What are we going to do with this? You know, and this really comes to the thing. I, you know, I would do the same for my, for my kids. If they, if, if, if I was in this predicament, I have no interest in eating human meat and full disclosure, you know, the, their, their two Lewis and Salvador, they, they, sat away from the party when they did eventually begin to eat this meat. Um, Eddie suggested that they keep moving until someone simply fell. As I said, Antonio, the animal handler was the first to die. Franklin Graves was the next casualty. Um, as the blizzard progressed, Dolan began to rant deliriously. This is Patrick Dolan, the Irish guy stripped off. He, and this is a case of hypothermia. In fact, during some of the most delirious moments of hypothermia, people's bodies will suddenly, it'll feel like it's, you've just literally become like in a sauna. You're so hot. He stripped off his clothes and ran into the woods. He shortly returned and died a few hours later. 
Not long after, possibly because Murphy was near death, some of the group began to eat flesh from Dolan's body. Lemuel's sister tried to feed some to her brother, but he died shortly afterwards. Eddie, Salvador, and Louise refused to eat. The next morning, the group stripped the muscles and organs from the bodies of Antonio, Dolan, Graves, and Murphy. They dried them to store for the days ahead, taking care to ensure nobody would have to eat his or her relatives. And they did. They split it into groups, and they ate, and they sobbed. They cried. And they didn't look at each other, and they sat for a moment after their bodies regained consciousness. Basically like a hard reboot on your PC, like... During starvation, you can actually lose that sense of hunger as your body is literally making adjustments to process what it has in it. And in this instance, as soon as they got that meat smell in their nose, they became just ravaged with hunger. And as they ate these people and this this meat coursed into their body and they got that full-on just reboot 100%, not necessarily 100%, but you get what I mean. Like their body is like, oh shit, food, yeah, we like this. They were, they would eat again. And uh, after three days rest, they set off again searching for the trail. Eddie eventually succumbed to his hunger and ate human flesh, but that was soon gone. They began taking apart their snowshoes to eat the oxide webbing. Which again, that oxide webbing is like glue. So if you ever were that kid that liked to eat glue, I guess you'd be happy. And what uh, was the what was the was it the Revolutionary War episode that <laughs> we talked about eating your boot? <laughs> yeah. That's basically, basically what they're doing. Just eating your fucking boots, man. Eating your snowshoes, eating the oxide that's just like how do they like? How do they chew know, it and man. swallow it? It would take forever. I remember as a kid, like shoving a leaf in my mouth and trying to chew on it. I, I every time I think of eating things like shoes or whatever, I just imagine that and being like, Bleh. yeah, that's just it's just a horrible, horrible. Yeah, you don't want to die this way, folks, or you don't want to be stuck in these predicaments. Jay Fostick died during the night, leaving only seven members of the party, so Sarah's husband died. Eddie and Mary Graves left to hunt, but they, when they returned with deer meat, Fostick's body had already been cut apart for food. People were just like, they got that taste. And unfortunately, as we see when we get to the kids later on, that meat, that primal urge, that... These people were, I mean, meat was a primary resource of protein for this people, as it is today in some ways. But, like, especially on the trail, you know, it. I, I think this the, those hunger pains and that type of calorie burn that they were exerting themselves with during this travel, specifically they needed, they're maybe not necessarily needed, but their, their drive was, their hunger was for for me and um poor sarah i really feel for sarah graves her 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 husband and her dad dies people already eaten her dad and when they asked if they could eat her husband jay they were like well or she specifically was like well it's not nothing else is gonna hurt him now 
and they'd already cut them apart and made them into food. So after several more days, 25 since they left Truckee Lake, they came across Salvador and Luis, who had not eaten for about nine days and were probably close to death. William Foster shot both men, thus realizing his plans from before they had left. Their bodies were then butchered and their flesh dried for consumption. So they were murdered. They murdered Luis and Salvador. Luis and Salvador said, hey, we're not part of this. We're not eating people. This is wrong. They split from the group, probably getting a sense of like, hey, I think these guys are really liking when they ate each other. Maybe we should get the fuck out of here, Lewis. Yeah, I think you're right, Salvador. And they beat feet, and then they came upon him and fucking ate him. So, as per the Halloween month, there, there's the, we're getting into the darker half here, especially with the eating of people and then the murder. Though the murder of the two young men was not kept secret, Kristen Johnson notes that Foster was not greatly blamed for it and spent the rest of his life without being troubled by the authorities. This can be attributed to the general attitude as expressed by Louis Pentagonoff that the lives of Native Americans seemed to matter little. And that's just terrible, folks. Not more than a few days later, the group stumbled into a Native American settlement looking so deteriorated that the camp's inhabitants initially fled. In fact, when they walked in, there were like little kids like looking at them, pointing and crying because they just looked disgusting. I mean, their clothes survived the deserts, the salt, the mountains, the snow. They'd walk past a tree and part of their... Clothes would get ripped off. I mean, I remember reading a part of the book said one of them had used the, what little part of fabric they had and ripped it off to use as a bandage or maybe to eat their clothes. These people are malnourished. They're gross. They're, they're burnt husks of people. And not only that, physical but like i said before the mental strain of having to eat your travel compatriots or know your family was ingested by people you were with i can't imagine what that felt like and when they got there they just looked like fucking zombies i mean think of walking dead that's what i thought of in my head when i was in the, in the, in that area of the book was just these just ramshackle beat to hell people walking into this campsite not only that the native americans gave them what they had to eat acorns grass and pine nuts in a kind of like a paste after a few days eddie continued on with the help of tribe members to a ranch in a small farming community at the edge of sacramento valley a hurried assembled rescue party found the other six survivors on january 17th their journey from Truckee lake took 33 days I want to mention something. When those people got there, like I said, um, they're, um, initially they had kind of split as they were doing their trail. Cause like, you know, in a wagon train, you'd have your, your wagon up ahead, or you'd have your people doing spot who would run up ahead and, or ride up ahead in their horse. In this instance, Eddie was the first person to get there. He had no shoes, and he was trailing blood by every step. And that is, in fact, how the rest of the remaining members of the Forlorn Hope got to this Native American site, was they followed the trail of blood that Eddie left. And on top of that, these people, these Native Americans, were of the same tribe of Louis and Salvador. 
and they spent the night there with packs of their bodies in stored with them. So not only were these Native Americans just being friendly to them, but they allowed these people who'd murdered their kin to stay with them in their packs, like hunks of them, like a hunk of their fucking chest meat just sitting in their <laughs> in their backpack, which is just fucking disgusting. But it's true. Um, so we're going to get into the rescue now. James Reed made it out of the Sierra Nevada. In late October, he was safe and recovering at Sutter's Fort, but each day he became more concerned for the fate of his family and friends. He pleaded with the government to gather a team of men to cross the pass and help the party. In return, Reed promised to join Fremont's forces and fight in the war. He was joined by McCutcheon, who had been unable to return with Stanton, as well as some members of the Harlan Young party. The Harlan Young wagon train had arrived at Sutter's Fort on October 8th, the last to make it over the Sierra Nevada that season. The party of roughly 30 horses and a dozen men carried food supplies and expected to find the Donner party on the western side of the mountain along the... Uh, along the river below the steep approach. Um, so there was, <clears throat> there was this whole period here where it, it gets specifically really fucking brutal. Um, for the winter at the time, I mean, you don't have a lot of ways for people to pass and to get back and forth but you've you everybody's kind of regained their their composure you know this this was the first part in the book where i i felt like i was finally breathing because it was so fucking miserable the whole time and i i guess um i guess i don't know if you're like me when you're reading a book it's like can these people get a goddamn break even though i felt bad like I felt, I don't know, it's, this, this story is, is very gray, you know, there's few and far between heroes, I guess I would say Franklin Graves is a hero, and even James Reed, as shitty of a human as he was since he murdered that guy, he still came back, and, um, but still it is, it is a relatively gray, gray thing, um, because, like, I mean, people people weren't necessarily very friendly. <laughs> I mean, to murder your trail guides. I understand the, the 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 idea, but like, it's like, yeah, obviously, if we're gonna eat somebody, we're gonna eat a stranger and not family or friends we met along the way. But it's still fucked up, you know. It's like you feel bad too because Lewis and Salvador were like, "Hey, man, you guys can eat each other, but we're staying out of it." And then they're like. Hmm, you're looking like a pile of fucking Nacho Supreme over there, Lewis. <laughs> Coming for you. <laughs> I know it's bad. Oh my god, you're all these food references you're making Shepherd's Pie and Nacho <laughs> Supreme. Fucking <laughs> 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 gotta make a fourth meal run. Lega Lemwell. <laughs> 
I know. I'm sorry. Uh. So I'm okay. So I said this, but I'm, I'm going to reiterate it because my computer is being stupid. So James Reed made it out of the Sierra Nevada to Rancho Johnson in late October. He was safe and recovering at Sutter's Fort, but each day became more concerned for the fate of his family and friends. He pleaded with Colonel John C. Fremont to gather a team of men to cross the pass and help the party. In return, Reed promised to join Fremont's forces and fight in the Mexican-American War. Future episode. He was joined by McCutcheon, who was... Uh, who had been unable to um, return with Stanton as well as some members of the Harlan Young Party, that first party that left. The, the party that left on time, relatively. The Harlan Young wagon train had arrived at Sutter's Fort on October 8th, the last to make it over the Sierra Nevada that season. The party of roughly 30 horses and a dozen men carried food supplies and expected to find the Donner Party on the western side of the mountain along the Bear River below the steep approach to Emigrant Gap. Perhaps starving but alive, when they arrived in the river valley, they found only a pioneer couple, migrants who had been separated from their company who were near starvation. Two guides deserted Reed and McCutcheon with some of their horses. It's interesting because this, you know, we talked about the forlorn hope and them arriving finally to the Mayutes and like getting kind of a reprieve. They, <clears throat> I didn't mention this as well, and this is in the book. The reason I said that they were able to find their way to where Eddie was was because of the blood trail. But not only that, he had, these people were prone to sobbing or moaning in the night in pain and in their literal starvation and their mania. So they listened for that as well because they could just hear like why? What the fuck? Why? They were all like this, man, because they were, dude, this is like snow water torture constantly. Your cold is, I mean, look, I don't know about you, but part of me thinks Franklin Graves was probably like, this fucking sucks. And like literally looked up to the heavens, was like, beam me up, God, I am out. Like, take me out of this body because this shit blows. Like... It sucked. It sucked. Like, it sucked. But anyway, so two guides deserted Reed and McCutcheon because even these, like, relief parties, they had the same bullshit, this sucks ass, why the fuck are we in the worst winter of all time thing. Like, they'd get out, they'd get in the bar and then be like, let's do some shots. We're the rescue party. Yeah. And then they would get, like, two minutes into their journey, or I'm sorry, two days into their journey and just be like, <laughs> I'm just saying they would, they would, it would, it sucked. It sucked. So the Reed McCutcheon had the two deserters. They pressed on farther up the valley to Yuba Bottoms, Walking the last mile on foot, Reed and McCutcheon stood looking up at Emigrant Gap, only 12 miles from the top, blocked by snow. Possibly on the same day, the Breens attempted to lead one last effort to crest the pass from the east. Despondent, they turned back to Sutter's Fort. The rescuers concealed the fate of the snowshoe party, informing the rescued migrants only that they, had, they did not return because they were frostbitten. So they fucking told a fib. Poor Lewis and Salvador. 
Patty and Tommy Reed were soon too weak to cross the snowdrifts, and no one was strong enough to carry them. Margaret Reed faced the agonizing predicament of accompanying her two older children to Bear Valley and watching her two frailists be taken back to Truckee Lake without a parent. She made rescuer Aquila Glover swear on his honor as a mason that he would return, return for her children. Patty told her, quote, Well, mother, if you never see me again, do the best you can. Upon their return to the lake, the Breens flatly refused them entry to their cabin, but after Glover left more food, the children were grudgingly admitted. You can't deny kids. Be a human. Dude, I... Thinking about this whole fucking thing, not... I know we're real close to wrapping up, Mm -hmm. but, uh, like, you know, you... You have three children. I have my son, mm-hmm. six years old. You know, it's, I can't even imagine having my one child, let alone three or six or eight fucking kids, like be in that sort of predicament. Like it <clears throat> literally, I, I mean, I don't know as a parent, like it just, it's just gotta suck so bad. Like I, I to see your children in any sort of, you know, bad situation or, you know, where they could be harmed or, you know, threatened. Like, I just can't, I can't imagine like, and, and, you know, not to like break anybody's hearts, but a lot of kids died. A lot mm-hmm. of fucking little kids died during this fucking whole ordeal. And it yeah. sucks. It really does. It sucks a lot during the rescue attempts. Like a lot of them got rescued, but a lot of kids just, Died. didn't make it well it's fucking horrible it, yeah and it was terrible for for everybody involved but the specifically the ptsd for the kids that survived too you know or the people that that survived afterwards because when the press got a hold of this story i mean this thing ran and ran and ran and you know for for simple folk sitting on their porch reading the newspaper or reading whatever news they got this was fodder for some interesting stories, especially the cannibalism side of it. That's where it probably even extrapolated more because people were so fantas are not fantasized. They were they were so like just shocked, you know. It was a crazy fucking story, but yeah. After several days more travel through difficult country, the rescuers grew very concerned that the children would not survive. Some of them ate the buckskin fringe from one of the rescuers' pants and the shoelaces of another. To the relief's party surprise, on their way down from the mountains, they met the next rescue party, which included James Reed. Upon hearing his voice, Margaret Reed sank into the snow overwhelmed. After those rescued migrants made it safely into Bear Valley, William Hook, Jacob Donner's stepson, broke into food stores and fatally gorged himself. That's no joke. He died literally from eating. The others continued to Sutter's Fort, where Virginia Reed wrote, I really thought I had stepped over into paradise. She was amused to note one of the young men asked her to marry him, although she was only 13 years old and recovering from starvation, but she turned him down. Around the time of the first relief party was being organized, nearby California settler and patriarch George C. Yount had likely previously heard of the plight of the Donner Party and in distressing dreams of a struggling group of starving pioneers in deep snow. Yount, Mariano, 
Guadalupe Vallejo, and others then raised $500 to send out another rescue party. On March 1st, the second relief party arrived at Truckee Lake. Now, this is where the horror really, to me, the lingering and the nightmares of this story really hit. <clears throat> when they get to Truckee Lake, you got to keep in mind, this has been months. What was supposed to be a, a I don't know, nine-day trip over the mountain pass had turned into several months of eating roofs, had turned into overblown snowdrifts in a spot that was so densely packed with snow, they didn't even know they were there. Like, they got to the destination and were like, this can't be it. And then all of a sudden you just see a weak old hand pop out of the snow. And their eyes, like they had been eating bones. They were on filth. Like, this is this is the filthiest part of the story. Months of children, children who had just seen hell. So they accompanied on the return with Reed and McCutcheon. Reed was reunited with his daughter, Patty, and his weakened son, Tommy. An inspection of the Breen cabin found its occupant, occupants relatively well, but the Murphy cabin, according to author George R. Stewart, passed the limits of description and almost imagination. Lavina Murphy was caring for her eight-year-old son, Simon, and the two younger children of William, Eddie, and Foster. She had deteriorated mentally and was nearly blind. The children were listless and had not been cleaned in days. Louis Kesselberg had moved into the cabin and could barely move due to an injured leg. No one at Truckee Lake had died during the interim between the departure of the first and the arrival of the second relief party. Patrick Breen documented a disturbing visit in the last week of February from Miss Murphy, who said her family was considering eating Milt Elliott. Reed and McCutcheon found Elliott's mutilated body. The Alder Creek camp fared no better. The first two members of the relief party to reach it saw Trudeau carrying a human leg. When they made their presence known, he threw it into a hole in the snow that contained the mostly dismembered body of Jacob Donner. Inside the tent, Elizabeth Donner refused to eat, although her children were being nourished by their father's organs. The rescuers discovered three other bodies had already been consumed in the other tent. Tamsin Donner was well, but George was very ill because the infection had reached his shoulder. Remember that hand cut we talked about like an hour ago? <laughs> medicine, man. Thank God for medicine. We're doing just fine, folks. The second relief evacuated 17 migrants from Truckee Lake, only three of whom were adults. Both the Breen and the Gray's families prepared to go. Only five people remained at Truckee Lake. Kesseberg, Miss Murphy, and her son Simon, and the young Eddie and Foster children. Tamsin Donner elected to stay with her ailing husband after Reed informed her that the third relief party would arrive soon. Miss Donner kept her daughters Eliza, Georgia, and Francis with her. The walk back to Bear Valley was very slow. At one point, Reed sent two men ahead to retrieve the first cache of food, expecting the third relief, a small party led by Selim E. Woodworth, to come at any moment. A violent blizzard arose after they scaled the pass. Five-year-old Isaac Donner froze to death, and Reed nearly died. 
Mary Donner's feet were badly burned because there was so frostbitten that she did not realize she was sleeping with them in the fire. <laughs> I see Adam's head just man. There's even the story about that with one of like one of the um one of the gentlemen on the first the forlorn party being so like just beaten by the weather and so just malnourished and shitty his hand fell in the fire and like somebody was like hey man hand and he's like oh sh- uh, shit pulls his hand out and then it falls in again and they're just like whatever maybe that helps i don't know anymore what is what is life i mean you can't feel anything i mean fucking your limbs are numb they're in the fire yeah. right i mean honestly might just start gnawing on my fingers. I don't know. <laughs> well, most kids like to chew their nails. I mean, might as well just up the ante, right? Eat your fingers. Ugh. So, like I said, Isaac Donner freezes to death. Reed nearly died. Mary Donner's feet were badly burned. When the storm passed, the Breen and Graves families were too apathetic and exhausted to get up and move. Not having eaten for days, the relief party had no choice choice but to leave without them the site where the breens and graves had been left became known as starved camp margaret breen reportedly took the initiative to try to keep the members of the camp alive after the others departed down the mountain soon however elizabeth graves and her son franklin perished before the next rescue party could reach them and the party resorted to eating flesh off the dead bodies in order to survive there's a story about one of the kids eating a rat and literally just going crazy from it. Like he found a rat and he just literally picked the rat up, a live rat, and shoved it in his mouth and ate it. And then was like, <laughs> and everybody who looked at him was just like, <laughs> you gotta fuck off with that thing. <laughs> I promise that was the last one. Uh, no. So, <clears throat> William Foster and William Eddy, survivors of the Snowshoe Party, started started from Bear Valley to intercept Reed, taking with them a man named John Stark. After a day, they met Reed helping his children struggle on toward Bear Valley, all frostbitten and bleeding but alive. Desperate to, re- desperate to rescue their own children, Foster and Eddy persuaded four men with pleading and money to go to Truckee Lake with them. During their journey, they found the 11 survivors at Starved Camp, huddled around a fire that had sunken into a pit. And I think I mentioned this to you, the sunken pit area. Two of the rescuers, hoping to save some of the survivors, each took a child and headed back to Bear Valley. John Stark refused to leave the others. He picked up two children. So this pit was so disgusting and depraved looking that some of them, when they arrived there at this pit that had had formed, said, and after seeing the kids with these just like covered in gore and like little zombie kids, like think of a horror movie and think of scary kids. This is what you see. They were like, oh my God, put a cross in front of their face. Like, okay, um, let's just go. But effectively um basically they they 
they kind of split with them, and then they were like, Eddie's just like, no, fuck this, we're taking them. Um, two of the rescuers, hoping to save some of the survivors, each took a child and head back to Bear Valley. It was John Stark who refused to leave the others. <clears throat> he picked up two children and all the provisions, assisted the remaining Breen's and Graves to safety, sometimes advancing the children down the trail piecemeal, putting them down, and then going back to carry the other debilitated children. There was a third relief, Eliza Donner, Georgia Donner, Francis Donner, Simon Murphy, and John Baptiste Trudeau. Foster and Eddie finally arrived at Truckee Lake on March 14th, where they found their children dead. Kesselberg took told Eddie that he had eaten the remains of Eddie's son. Eddie swore to murder Kesselberg if they ever met in California. Kesselberg would not live this down. Yeah, I, I would probably do the same thing if I... Well, first of all, I would never leave my son behind. Mm -hmm. uh, so, if, if I came back and like found out like he's eaten, dude, yeah, it'd be. I wouldn't have promised to murder the guy. I would have fucking done it right there. Right. Yeah. No. I, that just survival or not. Don't. Yeah. Don't eat my kid. Don't eat my fucking kid, dude. The end of the at the end of the day, this episode <laughs> said anything. Just don't eat your kid. Don't eat my kid. Don't eat your neighbor's kid. That should be an eleventh commandment. <laughs> Thou shall not eat thy neighbor's kid. And you know what? I could see that just just making its way onto that list somehow back in that era. Anyway. <laughs> George Donner and one of the Jacob Donner's children were still alive at Alder Creek. Tamsin Donner had just arrived at the Murphy cabin to see her daughters. She could have walked out alone but chose to return to her husband, even though she was informed that no other relief party was likely to be coming soon. Foster and Eddie and the rest of the third relief left with the Donner girls, young Simon Murphy, Trudeau, and Clark. Lavina Murphy was too weak to leave, and Kesselberg refused. Two more relief parties were mustered to evacuate any adults who might still be alive. Both turned back before getting to Bear Valley with, and no further attempts were made. On April 10th, almost a month since the third relief had left Truckee Lake, the Al-Qaeda, al uh, let's see, what is this? The al near Sutter's Fort organized a salvage party to recover what they could of the Donner's belongings. Those would be sold with part of the proceeds used to support the orphaned Donner children. The salvage party found the Alder Creek tents empty except for the body of George Donner, who had died only days earlier. On their way back to Truckee Lake, they found Louis Kesselberg alive. According to him, Miss Murphy had died a week after the departure of the third relief. Some weeks later, Tamsin Donner had arrived at his cabin uh, on her way over the pass. Soaked and visibly upset, Kesselberg said he put a blanket around her and told her to start, start out in the morning, but she died during the night. <sighs> the salvage party was suspicious, suspicious of Kesselberg's story and found a pot full of human flesh in the cabin, along with George Donner's pistols, pistols jewelry, and $250 in gold. They threatened to lynch Kesselberg, who confessed that he had cash cached $273 of the Donner's money at Tamsin's suggestion so that it could one day benefit her children. I call bullshit. 
News of the Donner Party's fate was spread eastward by Samuel Brennan, a journalist and elder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who ran into the salvage party as they came down from the pass with Kesselberg. Accounts of the ordeal first reached New York City in July of 1847. Reporting on the event across the U.S. was heavily influenced by the national enthusiasm for westward migration. In some papers, news of the tragedy was buried in small paragraphs small paragraphs despite the contemporary tendency to sensationalize stories. Several newspapers, including those in California, wrote about the cannibalism in graphic, exaggerated detail, which doesn't surprise me. I mean, we told you the facts today. A lot of this info came from the book. A lot of it came from the Wikipedias that kind of list the details so we could get the names right. And I mispronounce things on the regular, so sue me. But... Realistically, <clears throat> you didn't have to sensationalize this story. Between the fire pit, dead kids, the pot of George Donner's head that Kesselberg was keeping, the the people just walking into the camp with Indians in their backpacks that they had just mutilated, the this story's scary, disgusting, horrific, dark history of the highest order that didn't need to be sensationalized. The cannibalism already raises the bar to 10. Anything else is just trying to sell papers, which doesn't surprise me. Dude, I feel like anything and everything that could have went wrong for these people went wrong. Like, from, you know... Sort of, I said earlier, the turning point was when they decided to take the Hastings cutoff. But from the from the get-go, like, it was just, they left late, and it was just, you know, they hit the bad weather in Kansas, and it was just one thing after another. And after, like, the third or fourth thing, like, most people would have been like, yeah, let's, you know, reconsider what we're doing. But now nah, it was, like, 35 fucking things, and these people kept going. Mm-hmm. Like. Like, dude, like, I give them, I give them a, a B plus for effort. I put a little list together. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you looked at my notes, but I, I put a little list, and we covered most of them. But it, it said things that went wrong uh, during this fucked up trip. Go ahead. I got a little so, bit left, and then we'll be done. So, so they left too late. We covered that. They only packed enough food for four months. Obviously, this was way over four months. They trusted Hastings Guide too much. They, you know, this whole cutoff that never been explored, never been traveled. Um, we talked about how they kept adding people to their group, which meant, you know, <clears throat> more resources were being, you know, taken, eaten, whatever, consumed. Um, the warning letters that didn't get delivered, um, the the verbal warnings that they ignored. Um, just, you know, and once kind of, this is where it gets into the, to the cutoff is where, you know, they start losing all the cattle, you know, more and more people starting to die. They're running into the Paiute Indians that are raiding their, you know, their camp, taking all their cattle, shooting them, stealing them, uh, you know, the blizzard trapping them, you know, they're by this massive lake. They can't fish for shit. Right. And they tried. That was in the book. They were like, 
talking about how they literally could just stare at the fish, but they couldn't catch them. They're just swimming yeah. by, and they're just like, oh, boo. <laughs> yeah, like, dude, everything that went wrong went wrong. Totally. You know? And then, I, of course, like the Forlorn Home crew, you know, that just went went to shit. You know, half of them died, half of them got eaten. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, yeah, just everything that went it could go wrong went wrong. But anyway, yeah, just had to throw that little list out there to no, sum it up. I'm glad <laughs> you did. Now, we talked about the Hastings cutoff. Lansford Hastings received death threats, rightfully so, for his role in the disaster. <clears throat> A migrant who crossed before the Donner Party confronted him about the difficulties they encounter reporting. Of course, he could say nothing, but that he was very sorry and that he meant well. You know, he went on to write another guide. <laughs> I swear to God, I don't know if you read about it. No. <clears throat> so he, after this, later in the 1800s, like in the 60s and 70s, I think it went in, I, he lived about another 20 or 25 years. But he wrote a fucking, uh, I don't know if it was called the Emigrant's Guide, but it was a guide to uh, South America. Mm, of course. So he, he He's probably hiding south. out. Yeah, he went to South America or some shit and wrote another guide of, like, how to fucking get across the Amazon or some bullshit. Like, he never traveled it. He's just trying to sell these books. He's an idiot. That guy sucks. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, so we're going to talk about survivors. Of the 87 people who entered... The Wasatch Mountains, only 48 survived. Only the Reed and Breen families remained intact. The children of Jacob Donner, George Donner, and Franklin Graves were orphaned. William Eddy was alone. Most of the Murphy family had died. Only three mules reached California. The remaining animals perished. Most of the Donner Party's members' possessions were discarded. A few of the widowed women remarried within months. Brides were scarce in California. The Reeds settled in San Jose, and two of the Donner children lived with them. Reed fared well in the California gold rush. So, James Reed, him and his double carriage, he made off well. I mean, he served in the war. He came back. Again, I give him props for that. He's a guy that was in for the money, so obviously when the gold rush happened, he became a prospector in some regard. He became very prosperous. Virginia wrote an extensive letter to her cousin in Illinois, quote, about our troubles getting to California with editorial oversight from her father. Journalist Edwin Bryant carried it back in June 1847, and it was printed in its entirety in the Illinois Journal on December 16th, 1847, with some editorial alterations. Virginia converted to Catholicism, fulfilling a promise she had made to herself while observing Patrick Breen pray in his cabin. The Murphy survivors settled in Marysville, California, while the Breens made their way to San Juan Batista and operated an inn. They became the anonymous subjects of J. Ross Brown's story about his severe discomfort upon learning that he was staying with alleged cannibals. Printed in Harper's Magazine in 1862, many of the survivors encountered similar reactions. George and Tamsin Donner's children were taken in by an older couple near Sutter's Fort. Eliza was three years old during the winter of 1846 to 1847. 
the youngest of the Donner children, she published an account of the Donner party in 1911 based on printed accounts and those of her sisters. The Breen's youngest daughter, Isabella, was one, one year old during the winter of 1846 to 1847 and the last survivor of the Donner party. She died in San Francisco on March 25th, 1935. I'll now give you some friendly advice, she wrote. Stay at home. You're in a good place where, if sick, you are not in danger of starving to death. Mary Graves to Levi Fostick, her sister, Sarah Fostick's father-in-law, 1847. Stay at home. That's why I don't like to leave my house. School's canceled. (laughs) Hey, snow days are great when you're a kid in the Midwest. Oh, my God. And I think that that wraps up the Donner Party. There's more information you can find, especially about, you know, different stories. I highly recommend that different stars above Daniel James Brown's book. You can get it on Audible. It's a quick read. You can also see a little bit more of the wagon manifests. The details about frontier life are fascinating, as I said The world is an interesting place, and the history of it only exemplifies more the journey that we've had in this country and around the world. Technology is a great thing, medicine's a great thing, and connecting is a good thing. And if you want to connect with us, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, recommend our podcast on Spotify, five stars will shout you out. Thank you to those who have reviewed. And thank you to my friend Danger Zone. Do you have anything going on you want to shout out? No, I'm just, uh, you know, curious what this uh, El Nino is going to bring for us here in the uh, snow belt. Oh, yeah. Up in the, up in the, well, you're in the Midwest, Northeast. So we'll see. Maybe we'll get some Sierra Nevada type snowfall this year. I doubt it, but. Fucking hope not. I don't want to have to go outside and turn my car on 20 minutes before I got to go to work. We set a record high yesterday and a record high, close to record high today, maybe. I don't know if we broke it. I haven't seen the news, but uh, fucking 89 degrees yesterday, 85 today, and then it is going straight to fall weather. <laughs> and so we'll see. Snowfall is coming. Lake effect. Uh, not looking for easters that's why we take a break in the winter time for the show but we'll i'll get adam back on here one more time in november he came on here to 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 grace us with his presence i love you man um but yeah the donner party it's interesting sad it's kind of rough not a lot to joke about but we still did and uh Had an interesting conversation with my buddy again. But I love you, man. Uh, We'll do this again soon. Thanks for listening. Have a great one. No direction but to never fight her flow No direction but to trust the final destination 
You're a stranger till she whispers you can stay You're a stranger till she whispers that your journey's over Where you were before her majesty, the Verde River Where you were before her majesty, the Verde River Where you were before her majesty, the Verde River Way you worth before her majesty the Verde River